Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Great to be here. Great to know that you guys have been so supportive and so incredibly great to me and this show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And today I'm really, really happy, really, really thrilled because we have Tommy Davidson here. All I'll say about Tommy is about one thing that another guest on my podcast said recently. And that was Rita Rudner, and she was talking about her daughter, who was 14 years old, who wanted to be a singer and songwriter, and she was recording her first album. And her mom, Rita, sat down with her and said, I love you and I'll do anything for you. Myself and your dad will do anything to help you make it in this business. But there's only one thing that we can't give you, adversity. Sometimes it appears that the people who have the best shot of making it are the ones who've gone through the most difficult path because they fought through the ups and downs and they figured out a way to come up on top. And Tommy Davidson is a guy who started off his life in the worst possible way you could imagine, which was being born to an addict, being abandoned in the trash, and almost dying, and then being taken in by a white family, total cross-cultural differences, and somehow he figured out a way to get through it all and do what he loved best, which was entertaining people, not just with music, but with comedy. And I don't know 
anybody who's gone through that kind of adversity. And I think what Rita Redner was alluding to is the fact that if you are somebody in this business or any business and you can overcome that kind of odds, if you can figure out a way when everything's against you to still work hard and fight through and rally around the talent that God's given you in whatever profession you're in. You can persevere. But part two of that is throughout Tommy's life, the gene that was inside of his mom crossed over to him. So if it wasn't bad enough with the adversity, when he finally got to the point where he broke through and started blowing people away, then he lost his way. And each time he relapsed, he would fight his way back and get to the place where people worked with him and they were blown away. And each time, again, he would have a setback. He would fight his way back and be able to go on stage with any comedian in the world. And there isn't anybody from Chappelle to Chris Rock to Richard Pryor that would ever say that this guy isn't one of the funniest people in the world and one of the most talented. So I think if there's anything to think about, if you can figure out a way to overcome your adversity, figure out a way to fight your way through all the setbacks, it's possible to overcome. It's possible to look adversity in the face and laugh and fight through it and use your talent and your work ethic and your relationships to take you where you need to go. And if you can do that, I can guarantee you, your peers who are the best in their field will talk about you the way they talk about Tommy Davidson. Okay, here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I'm so, so happy to be here today and to introduce my guest, Tommy Davidson. And so without any further ado, here goes. Tommy Davidson's exceptional range from stand-up comedy and acting to versatile musical accomplishments have earned Davidson a reputation as a legendary performer. Tommy Davidson was born in Mississippi in 1963 and was abandoned in the trash of a drug house at the age of two. A woman found Tommy and adopted him into her all-white family and he lived his toddler years in Colorado. At the age of five, as his mom found that government job, Davidson's family moved to Washington, D.C. at the height of the Martin Luther King assassination riots. 
and due to the extreme racial tensions, Davidson and his white siblings were harassed by neighbors of both races. He worked in kitchens during high school and was an assistant chef at a Ramada Inn when a friend convinced him to try stand-up. The friend got the boss of a strip club to let Davidson perform at the age of 19. Despite having no prepared material, he made the audience laugh and wouldn't stop for the next three decades. Spotted by major concert promoters, Tommy was first booked as the opening act for Patti LaBelle, Kenny G, and Luther Vandross. It wasn't long before he came to Hollywood and was headlining the biggest rooms and met with Robert Townsend, who gave him a starring role in the movie Partners in Crime, which led him to Keenan Ivory Wayans, who subsequently cast Davidson in the groundbreaking sketch show in Living Color. Davidson performed hilarious impressions of Sammy Davis Jr., Michael Jackson, and many, many others on The Living Color, and somehow also found the time to tour the country ten times, do seven movies, and three stand-up specials, which included On Strength of New York, Illin and Philly, and Taking It to D.C. Tommy's film debut was opposite Halle Berry in Strictly Business, and he's been featured in many projects, including Spike Lee's Bamboozled, Booty Call, Ace Ventura 2, When Nature Calls, and the 2011 award-winning documentary, I Am Comic. This past summer, Davidson starred in Sharknado 4 and is currently featured in Dying Laughing, a documentary about comedians which just hit theaters this past February. As a voiceover artist in animation, Tommy starred in Will Smith's series Youngins, Disney's A Proud Family, and then the critically lauded comedy on Adult Swim, Black Dynamite, after he also co-starred in the original cult live-action feature film of the same name. Tommy currently serves as host of Vacation Creation, a CW show that gives struggling families the vacation of a lifetime. He recently launched his own brand of quintessential men's ties and suit accessories, is currently working on a new one-man show, has recently inked a book deal for his autobiography called Tommy Davidson Living in Color, and performs next month at Madison Square Garden as part of the April Fool's comedy show alongside Don D.C. Curry, Arnez J., Michael Blackson, and Arsenio Hall on April 1st. Ladies and gentlemen, a man that I am so excited to have come here to the fabulous Industry Standard Studios. Please welcome Tommy Davidson. Quite swanky digs here, too. Hey, what do you think? You're playing with kids? I like it. So I have so many things to ask you. The first thing I want to ask you is sometimes I think I'm going through tough times. Sometimes I, I sit in my room in the fetal position and I think to myself, God, this thing in my personal life happened. How am I going to overcome that? I don't know anybody in my life who was found as a baby in the trash and then became one of the most successful, iconic performers in comedy or in any profession. Well, I just think to myself, you start your life in the trash. I think it's valid to talk about that because your biological mother suffered from addiction. Mm -hmm. Your biological father was in and out of 
whatever craziness he was going through. And they say that the talent gene and the addict gene carry over. LeBron's son, it's not a difficult assumption when you see him play that the talent came. But you also know that there's certain people who grew up in homes of alcoholic parents mm -hmm. where they carry the gene. Do you know, in fact, if your mom or dad were talented in any way, had any skill set that you have? And do you believe that uh, they didn't have any of that and you never saw any of that in them and you just developed this from your family and what you were living with your mom that adopted you? I think it came out of condition because when I actually met my mom, you know, she told me the story about she was on heroin, she had four kids, she couldn't cope. She dropped me off somewhere at a house. You know, she sings in the gospel or whatever, but she doesn't have what I have. I have something special, just like Whoopi called it uh, part of the Magnificent Seven. Only Jim Carrey, uh, Billy Crystal, Robin Williams, uh, Michael Keaton, and Tom Hanks have it where they do a little bit of everything and they do it good. So that was just a miracle, you know? And my dad was 50, already had a family, an undertaker, all right? Uh, not much to draw a comedy out of that. And she was his woman on the side. Is your belief that talent is something you're just born with, or do you think it comes through the environment you're in, or do you feel you might be mistaken about your mom and dad, and they might have had some talents, but they never utilized them because they were not in that mm -hmm. profession? I think environment dictates, uh, because an all-white family, my mom that found me happened to go to the house, she actually worked with my mother in the civil rights movement and she left and came back and she was gone but she asked about the children. She said she left with the children but that left the youngest child at a house. And she went to the house, it was, it was like kids doing drugs all over the place so she left there immediately. She saw a pile of trash on the side of the house there was a big tire on top of it, and she said, something told me to look behind the tire. And she looked behind the tire, she saw my foot. She moved all the trash out of the way. I was almost dead. There was a T-shirt on me that said, I'm gonna be president in 2000, and then the rest was ripped, you know? They took me to the hospital, nursed me back to health. About four weeks later, I moved to Fort Collins, Colorado, the whitest place on earth. And I didn't know I was black until I moved to Washington, D.C. in 1968, when King got shot. How did you realize that you were black then? The, we went to a swimming pool, me and my brother and sister. First of all, we rolled into uh, D.C. and there were tear gas everywhere, tanks, fires. Me and my sister were laying on the floor. This is where the comedy begins. Because my sister looks like Cindy Brady. My brother looked like David Cassidy. We're laying on the ground. We're moving into inner city Washington, D.C. with a white mom. The next day, we go to the swimming pool. And all the black kids kick our ass all the way home. Your ass, too. My ass, too. 
because I was called a white cracker lover. Did you know what that meant? No. Here's the discovery of white and black and color and where the atom in my mind was split at five years old, okay? So they beat her ass so bad I get home. They're calling them white crackers and they're calling me white cracker lover, right? So I, so I go to my mom and I go, I don't understand what just happened because all those kids kick my ass and were calling me white cracker lover and I like graham crackers. I don't even like white crackers. <laughs> you see, this is a kid. So she said, uh, when people who are our color don't like people who are your color, okay? That's what they call them. That's what they call them. And I was like, well, what color am I? She said, you're black. Now, you can't tell me that because I grew up in Laramie, Wyoming, Fort Collins, Colorado, on farms in meadows, near mountains, mountain ranges, around animals. So I thought that I was a brown one. Whatever we are, you know, I was a brown one. My sister and my brother were peach ones. Because <laughs> I, I learned my comedy from crayons, right? And so I would see a cat have kittens. The cat could be brown. It could have a speckled kitten, a gray one, a white one, an all black one. So I'm figuring I'm a brown one. Or you'd see a horse have a colt. The horse could be brown, have a white horse. So I'm thinking I'm a brown one. So that just, that was it. That shit blew me away. So when was the first time you heard somebody call you the N-word? So we moved out to the suburbs because that's, the, that's gonna be the solution, right? I gotta get my kids out of here, right? It was worse. Grown men were chasing me home from school. I barely was making it in the door. People were shooting in our house. My mom used to have us on the on the floor picking peas with the lights out, you know? I didn't know then she had us ducking, you know? And it's the first time I heard the word nigger, and I heard it all the time. And I heard people calling them nigger lovers all the time, you know? And it happened so much, I finally came to my mom, and I was like, Mom, who are these niggas? Because <laughs> they seem to be pretty bad fucking people, you know? We need to stay away from them. What's going on? And she said, that's when people our color, when they don't like people your color, call them. And again, my head just split in half, like the whole world at five. I'm like, what is this world we living in? So there's an antidote though. Here's, here's the comedy. So we moved to an integrated neighborhood. Okay, a couple of days I was playing around on the railroad track. I don't, kids shouldn't do that. 
and some white teenagers spotted me. I know the drill. I better run away right away. It's nigga this, nigga that. We can't wait to catch you, boy. We're going to kick your ass. And two big old black guys appeared from nowhere. And I ran behind them. And the white guys ran the other way. And I've been black ever since. <laughs> True story. Was your mom the kind of person who told you that she loved you all the time? Very nurturing. You know that old expression, no good mm -hmm. deed goes unpunished? Mm -hmm. Did you feel like she was punished unnecessarily throughout her life for making this decision? The family I came from didn't see race. And where I grew up in um, Wyoming and Fort Collins was actually a different kind of white person. Now, it's hard to tell black people they're a different kind of white people, you know? But I remember my grandfather telling me when I was about four, he took me fishing. And he told me, you know, because we watch cowboy and Indian movies. He told me, Tommy, there's a lot of people, a lot of cowboys that didn't kill Indians. Never did, never wanted to. You know, that was the family. That was the family. My uh, mother was an activist. You know, she, she worked with the civil rights movement with her then husband. They were professors at Colorado State. That's how they ended up in Mississippi finding me. They were immunizing children, uh, doing voting drives. That's what they were doing because Kennedy said, they saw Kennedy on TV and Kennedy said, if you look back on this part of history, will you be able to say that you did something? So they went down there. And in her going back there in her travels, that's when she discovered, because my mom worked with her for voting drives and stuff, my, my natural mom. So when she didn't find her just visiting, that's when she went to the house and that's when she, when she found me. So my family is, uh, you know, I found more racism in Boston than I've found in Birmingham, Alabama. You know, but I'd be the one to see it. Because I picked up racism before I could intellectually know what it was. Because I remember going into restaurants as I got older, 12 years old. I go in a restaurant with my family. And, you know, I get the old, you know. We all look like I'm different. So, and she educated me. She had me read Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee when I was eight. She had me read uh, the Lena Horne story, her novel, when I was like 10. And she had me read Malcolm X when I was probably about 12. She, she said, not only are you gonna read it, she a pretty tough woman. You can. But when she gave me <laughs> when she gave me the Malcolm X book, the first thing she said to me was, Before you read this, I want you to know that the white people aren't the devil. And I was like, Mom, I know that. I know that. Because my, my grand my grandfather is, is a cowboy from Oregon in Wyoming. And my grandmother is this, you know, this beauty 
from Texas. You know, you look at old pictures of them. She looks like Marilyn Monroe. Were there people in your family that you could tell were racists towards you, but they just tried to hold it back, but that slipped out every once in a while? No. There was nobody in the family that looked down upon your mom for what she did? No. Everybody actually was really excited. I actually was spoiled. I actually was the golden child. You know, my grandfather would have me for Thanksgiving, have us up in um, Oregon for Thanksgiving. My brother and sister had to do dishes, right? And I was like his guy. And we'd watch college football. And why doesn't Tommy have to do anything? And you go, Tommy's with me. <laughs> Tommy's with me. <laughs> and he always took a special interest in me. He always did. And what we do when he, uh, we'd watch college football, he was teaching me some stuff that I, I didn't really realize that I know now because of him. He would, meet me, he would make me read the, ba the back of the jerseys of all the players. He'd grill me. And he'd go, he'd go, Polinski, what's that? You know? Polish, you know? Right? Nucci, what's that? What's that? You know, he taught me. Italian, you know, brown, American, could be black or white, Goldberg, Jewish. <laughs> this is an understanding that I think came out of my own unique experience, you know. Um, and you and I don't blame black people for how they feel because their general consensus is we've caught hell from white people but not a lot of blacks know that there are so many variations and actually they don't have to because they're going hey I got a foot in my ass by people who look like that you know but I was in we go to folk festivals like we were hippies we were hippies we were hippie kids my, my dad when they broke up moved to a commune in Fort Collins. They were together when you were adopted. Right, and then they broke up. How old were you? I was, uh, we, they broke up when I was five. That's why we moved. So he stayed in Colorado, that was about 66, 67. And they were hippies. That was 68. It was 68. He was a hippie. He was a hippie. She was a teacher. They both were teachers. And she had a job at uh, Chicano Youth School. So I, I, I knew who Mexicans were way back. Because I was like the golden boy. They call me um, Tamasito Negrito. <laughs> you know, and while she was working with all the kids, they were the bad kids. They were, you know, getting in trouble. She'd leave me there, and they would babysit me. And I was like a hero, man. They carried me around. They gave me presents, blah, 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 you know. So, you know, she staked out like most women did in the 70s, you know, because, you know, Helen Redding was coming. The women's movement was coming. You know, that only translates to me that the kids got to do all the fucking homework. I mean, all the housework, you know. Um, I remember how important Maude was. And Mary Tyler Moore was because all of a sudden, all of these women, 
you know, they're going to have the job. They're going to take care of the family. They're going to do this stuff. So why she took us to Washington, D.C., the reason being, you know, to, to grab a government job and take care of her three kids, you know, and raise them in, in some place uh, that had a lot of uh, valuable uh, principles around and a political atmosphere. But I didn't know this stuff back then. It wasn't until she passed away that I realized what she created in me, you know? Larry Davidson, which is my name. Why did you change it? Uh, that was part of the whole adoption process. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. What was your original name on your birth certificate? My original name on the birth certificate was Anthony Reed. Okay. But we had such a hard time finding mom. We actually, my mom actually had to, had to go through hell and high water to sign papers. And when, when the parent doesn't show up, she can take him with her. So she did it legally. And if they didn't, if there's a certain amount of time that, that went by that they haven't heard from her, she can go for a legal adoption. And that, that day came, obviously, and it was, it was, uh, uh, time to change the name on the birth certificate, that whole thing. And my mom, my, my uh, biological's mom, like most country black women, was two names, you know, Billy Joe or whatever it might be. Her name was Tommy Jean. So my mom said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make your first name your real mom's and I'll make your your name Davidson. So and that relates to comedy because uh, in 86 when I came out here I put my name in the hat at the comedy store with Don Barris. Don Barris who's <laughs> still there. And the other skinny guy who did uh, commercials uh, they're still there amazingly they're still there they're the guys that said uh, you're not what we're looking for Mitzi would hate you for three, for three years straight they're actually still there they'd pull the name out of the hat come to the stage 
Tommy Davidson, if I got on stage. What do you mean if you got on stage? If they pull my name. Oh God, yeah. Even they can even pull your name. You know that. Yeah. What time did you get there? They can there? pull your name and and uh, Ben Stiller walk in and you can hang it up. Back then, it might still be in effect today for open micers. You'd have to get there early in the morning and wait in line. So you got a number, and the first I think thirty or forty people got a number and a hat, maybe fifty, mm-hmm. and then they would draw them out of a hat, which mm-hmm. sort of unfair because if you waited there early in the morning, I guess you're you waited there to get be part of the fifty or so that got in the right. hat, and then they choose twenty, I believe, right? Right. That was that. The laugh factory was you show up on Monday night and hope they pull your name. So you can do bit parts during the week. They give you like two minutes here, two minutes there. So, but you'd have to be there on Monday night. You get in the line. You pull your hat. That was it. I never understood the Ice House. <laughs> the Ice House is actually the oldest comedy club in Los Angeles. Maybe the country. It's in Pasadena, run by some wonderful people. So now... If I ride into a town and I see my name on the billboard, it means a lot because, you know, when you first go on stage and you don't have a name, uh, more credits help you. More credits help you because it, it helps the audience go, wow, maybe this guy's really funny. So you go, he's playing colleges and he's playing colleges, you know. Uh, all around the country, you know, he, he did a thing in such and such in college, bring him to the stage. That, that it helped. Most people who are old enough remember where they were when JFK was shot. Mm-hmm. As a black man living in a white family who were people who were activists for Martin Luther King, do you remember, even at five, where you were when you found out that Martin Luther King Jr. got shot and tell me how your mom's demeanor as a person in this world changed when the hope of an entire generation mm-hmm. of black people rested on this man's shoulder and he was taken out mm-hmm. just out of nowhere. He was kind of a something natural happened. Like I said, we moved there when he got shot so it was uh maybe a day before you know so that was a circumstance i didn't know anything she told me that back you know later i'm i'm like i'm i'm five but what i remember in dc when i lived in washington dc there were a lot of black kids that we hung out with before we finally moved to the suburbs. She had befriended him, you know? That whole finding out I was black and white was an incident that just hit me to the fact that, hey, I ain't brown, I'm black even though I'm really brown, you know? But a lot of teenagers would hang out at the house and listen to music, you know? My mom was like really hip, you know? And she got along with all the black moms. You know, I didn't know what was going on as far as King goes until years later, but I do know about James Brown. (laughs) And that was my first entertainment years. 
because I can automatically dance and sing better than anything. When did you know you could dance and sing? How do you know you have the skill for mimicking? How do you know you have the skill for dancing, singing? What happens? I didn't know. The music started coming on and I just came alive and everybody got a kick out of it. They were like, look at this little dude. Look at him. So what they would do was they would, they would uh, get ar- all get around, get beers and stuff. Say, Barbara, go get your son. She bring me downstairs. They take a spoon, put tin foil over it, lift me up on the table and put on Say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. And I just, I just say it loud. I'm black and I'm proud. It's a party. Say it loud. I'm black and I'm proud. And I do this whole dance thing. I imagine they also were laughing and being entertained. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So five years old, you were doing comedy and music. Not that I knew of. And um, it was uh, Aretha Franklin, R-E-S-P-E-C-T, find out what the means to me, R-E, it was Soul Man. So they put that on, and I, Soul Man, and I knew all the dances, the pony, the monkey, the jerk. I learned them all fast. That was my first... Now, your brothers and sisters, were they musically inclined? Were they funny? No. (laughs) But they tried. They tried. They would try to dance with everybody else, you know. And there is an innate, there is an, I can say this. I can say this. White people have the rhythm of a furnace? There was a, there was. (laughs) (laughs) There just was an innate, not natural thing that was there. That's changed now. I mean, they didn't have the thing. They didn't have the thing. And I watched music from that. That became my babysitter. That became my babysitter. And your brother and sister, were they jealous of you? No. We were the best of friends. Are you still close with them? My brother passed away. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, yeah. He was one of the first people to contract AIDS. Late 70s. Maybe 77. Did he know what was wrong with him? Uh, Everybody was trying to find out what this was. And his lover was a lot older. Michael was, if I was 15, Michael was 18, living with the guy. That was his man. Michael was really advanced, very advanced kid. Michael took his GED when he was 15 and hitchhiked around the country. I was jealous of him because he was like a genius, you know. In my room, I had G.I. Joe's. And in his room, he had model planes set up in wood frames with cotton as clouds, several different models looking like they're flying. Like, Michael was a straight-up genius. Did he know he was dying? Uh, no, not at that time. His, his lover died. And it was years and years and years later that he actually contracted it himself. And that was the, actually the early 90s. That was actually during the In Living Color years. And I went up and took care of him. And um, there's a place, Capitol Hill. Me, my mom, and my sister took care of him. We all took turns. So I went up, my big brother, 
who I looked up to so long, I ended up going, hanging out with him, going to get groceries for him, you know, taking care of him, you know? When Michael died, that really devastated us because Michael was like, like the emotional glue. Michael sent cards to us. He made sure all the birthdays were right. My mother facilitated them. You know, she'd make a pumpkin cake. You know, she'd make her fruit salad every time on Thanksgiving. She cooked all the food. So, but Michael was the guy who made sure everybody enjoyed themselves. It was fucking embarrassing to me because we'd go to a concert, Parliament Funkadelic, and I got this white boy in a top hat going crazy, you know? And he's the one that, that did this, would, would create the circus in the, back, in the backyard. He'd make the circus. He'd do the bicycle rallies. He'd scare the motherfuck out of us at Halloween. Like, he was, he was the dude. Mike was the dude. And um, it was an eye-opener because he was my big brother, and then I ended up taking care of him in Seattle. But the interesting part was he turned into an AIDS activist and went to Congress, did the big quilt, and one of the, one of the, he was one of the instrumental people that helped Congress pass this into a legal disease. He was one of the guys, gay, lesbian, that whole world. He was one of the guys that did that. So here's where the comedy comes in. So he's on his dying, he's, they're, they're saying, this is it, you know, you better stay with him for the next day, you know? And I had a gig in Dallas, a comedy gig. He's in hospice. He's at home with my mom and my, my, my sister, and they're carrying him from the, from the bathtub, wiping his butt. I couldn't do all that stuff. The whole family's there. I got to cancel the gig in Dallas because he's right at the edge. I call the promoters. I got a family emergency. It's very bad, you know. My brother's not going to make it till tomorrow. I can't make the gig. Promoter says, if you don't make the gig, we're going to go to the radio station and say you're back on drugs. We're going to make it clear. So my family had a meeting. And I called my business manager at the time. And he said, yeah, sometimes that happens when you have a relative. There's nothing you can really do anyway, you know? But it's better to go to the show after everything you've built back, the reputation you've built back for that, than to not. So I went to the show, and my brother died that day. And I did my show. And I also performed the night my mom died, too. And when I came back, here's some beauty. When I came back, his body was still there, and we had a talk before I left. My mom said, you better go and talk to him. And he said, he said, um, we said our apologies for being such jerks as kids to each other, because we were like, man, we battled all the time. And we both said sorry. But what he said was, he said, he said, I want you to remember something, Tommy. He said, people are going to treat you kind of bad, and you're not going to know why. And I don't think even they are, 
but you're coming from such a different background that that vibration that you carry is so strange it may make people react in that way towards you and I was like okay alright and it's made sense it's made sense it was kind of a deep thing to say but I think only he can make that observation because he was on his way to wherever we go and it's helped me so right before you're leaving tell me the last thing you said to your brother we both said it we always said it since we were little kids you know we would ask each other the question who's my best friend he'd go Tommy who's my best friend and he would go Michael came back his dad was there whom I disowned because he was never around didn't help my sister kind of favored him you know I don't blame him we didn't we hadn't spoke for years and he was in the room with Michael's body and I peeped my head in and he was so devastated and then when he came out of the room you know he came up to me and hugged me and me and him went in the hallway and we talked and it all went away because we both realized that we loved the same man you know and me and my dad's relationship was never the same we're like buddies like cook food for he lives in Denver I cook food for him in my hotel one time with the little kitchens and we watched all the football games you know and I go out there and visit him and he's just as proud as can be all of that is done all of that is done Magic Johnson had just contracted it and I called him because I knew what Michael had gone through and I told him you're gonna be okay you're gonna be okay I'm here with my brother if there's anything I can ever do for you you let me know and I know it's hard and he said thank you man thank you for that call hey everybody I'm really really excited we have a new sponsor aqua true this is the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. I know it sounds complicated, but let's put it this way. This is something that can take your tap water and can turn it into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You're going to be enjoying the best water, the safest water and if you haven't read all the news about Flint, Michigan, in every single state, there's over 100 chemicals found in tap water that are not even regulated by the EPA. Many of them are cancer-causing and have lead in them. So you can go to a special website that we've set up called industrystandardwater.com. It takes you directly to the AquaTrue site. And if you get this product, you're going to get $100 off. Just type in 100 in the special code section. You'll get that money off and you'll start saving. You can put a whole huge bottle of Diet Coke in this machine. And 10 minutes later, it'll come out with the best tasting water you've ever had. I got one of these products. It was unbelievable. Industrystandardwater.com. And you'll be enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever tasted.
tell me your first inspiration to wanting to be in the entertainment business. I know you say you were dancing on the table at five, but when you do music and comedy, you have this thing fighting inside you. You either want to be a comedian or you want to be a musician and a singer or a rock star. Which one did you want to be early on? A soul star. It started with James Brown, but it really came around with the Jackson 5. My aunt took me to see the Jackson 5 when I was eight in Washington, D.C. First of all, I saw the Jackson 5 on uh, the Diana Ross special and on Ed Sullivan. And I was like, what the f This was like in 69. That was, I was gonna be a singer. I knew all the moves, knew all the stuff, you know. I was ready, and then when I saw him live, my life was never the same, so I became the singer at all the talent shows. I needed bell bottoms, stack heels, afro, the music coming at me, the older chicks were liking me, you know? But I didn't really realize that there was a, kind of a, not a comedy side, but kind of a, a brave rebel coming, because when I was in the first grade, you know, we had to hold our hands up for the President uh, Pledge of Allegiance. And since my mom is so right on, and it's about the black power, and it's, it's my fr I'm in first grade, you know, I put up the black power fist and got in a lot of trouble by the school. But when I got home, her and her friends were on the floor. Laugh, they had tears in their eyes, and it confused me. Tell me your first time on stage doing comedy. Was at a strip club in Washington, D.C. The worst strip club you can ever imagine. It's in the worst neighborhood. The, the guards outside wear t-shirts that on the back reads, please don't shoot them. <laughs> Friend of mine, Howard, who I grew up with, who was the poorest person I ever grew up with, he got an orange, three plastic army men in a paper bag for Christmas and he came to my house all happy and my mom said give him one of your watches and I was like what give him one of your watches I'm like why because your grandmother gave you one and we gave you one so give him one and I was pissed but I didn't understand what she was trying to show me well Howard years later thought I was talented man and I had finally got I'm 18 I got a job as an assistant chef at the Ramada Inn in Crystal City, Virginia. And I called him, I was all happy. I was like, Howard, I got a job. And Howard went, you about the stupidest motherfucker I ever met. And I was like, what are you talking about? He said, if I were you, I would be in Hollywood doing movies and everything. You've been funny as shit since we were little kids. You can sing, you can do everything. Finally convinced me three months later to finally go down to this club. I walked in. The manager said, is that him? And he was like, yeah. And he was like, all right, you got five minutes, you know? And I looked at Howard. And I was like, man, what in the fuck do you want me to do? And he said, I don't care what you do, nigga. Say something, anything that comes to mind. And I swear to you, the first thing that came out of my mouth 
they died laughing. And I played at that club for three months straight. And it was a true story about my couch at home. It was a story. It wasn't even, I don't even, I'm not even a storytelling comic. You know that. But it's the first thing that came out of my mouth. I told him my mom used to make us clean up the kitchen like all day Saturday and all day Sunday because we had such a roach problem, right? And if we just did that, we'd have no more roaches. So we did that. But when me and my sister came home from school to watch Speed Racer, <laughs> we found out that the, roach, the roaches were eating our couch. They just moved. <laughs> and everybody just died laughing. So I stayed at that club. My, my rise is different. I stayed at that club for three months. Show promoters started noticing me. I started doing showcases, started meeting the Craig Frasers, you know, uh, Martins and all those people that were Garvins. I started meeting all those people, but I didn't play a club. I started doing concerts, you know. The promoters came to see me and said, there's, you know, acts in town. You got the kind of act that you sing and stuff, so you can do those acts. I met Patti LaBelle, Luther Vandross, Evelyn Champagne King, Patti LaBelle took me on shows with her. Luther took me on tour with him way later. And that's how that thing started. I was, I, I did the Apollo Theater in New York when it was a real show. Showtime at the Apollo? Yeah. I won everything. Amateur night. Right. I learned, a, I learned a lesson in one of the showcases in D.C. A friend of mine told, there was a big one where there were singers and comics and I said, I'm going to sing. I'm going to sing something acapella. And he said, don't do that, man. You're a unique comic. And I'm like, no, because my aspiration was still, I'm a singer. And I bombed didn't win the contest or nothing so I went with comedy and I came down came up to the Apollo was down to the last person he won I lost but I met Sinclair Jones Sinclair Jones told me this is going to go fast Sinclair told me hey man I'm an attorney but you got everything there is is you have everything you need to become a Hollywood star if I take you to LA for a week pay for the plane tickets get us a place to say would you consider moving to LA and making me your manager and I'm like shit a trip to LA fine when I hit the ground couldn't get in the comedy store laugh factory none of those places I went over to the comedy act theater comedy act theater it was an urban comedy club the only one in Los Angeles at the time now this it, during the year I came out here was 87 the Lakers won were winning championships and the Raiders were actually once two Super Bowls so if you go to this club all the Raiders all, all the Lakers every hot chick you ever want to see but most importantly Robert Townsend Keenan Ivory Wayans Paul Mooney I, I had met these guys Eddie Murphy you know I ain't met him Eddie Murphy and a guy really talented comedian named Robin Harris who hosted it every black comic that you know that who is anything now was there it was the highest level that you can go it started the whole black comedy movement period I walked in that club as a total rookie and everybody's there name them Mark Curry it's the place where you get discovered and we jockeyed a couple of times trying to get in there and they finally said yes you can do a set and Keenan was there, Damon was there, 
and these are you got to know they didn't have movies yet Damon was there Keenan was there um, Robert Townsend was there okay and that's big that's big because they were doing things they were like the big shots and I went on stage and I brought that motherfucking house down they never seen anything like me because I sang and I did comedy I did impressions like I was like the everybody else knew karate and I knew kung fu you know and I didn't know any better I was like really raw you know it was all talent and so I became a regular at this club which enabled me time in LA to start to go to the, the comedy store and it built from there but Robert Townsend remembered me was kicking ass so good that he put me on something called Partners in Crime, which is the first sketch movement leading up to Dave Chappelle or In Living Color or any of that stuff. And him and Keenan Ivory Williams were partners. He put me on that show. It was my first TV. I'm, I'm the first, I think I'm, I, I know that I am the first African-American comedian that got all his breaks from African-American men. The two people that broke me was a guy named Chris Sarpis and a, an agent named Carrie Woods at William Morris. And they took a liking to me. And they thought I was, they, they knew I was going to be the next guy. And Carrie Woods only had a couple of clients. He had um, Winona Ryder. He had uh, Uma Thurman. He had Andrew Dice Clay, Matt Dillon, and um, Gilbert Goffrey. That's all he had. And he concentrated on me 100%. Okay, I did uh, Partners in Crime. Arsenio put me on his show. That was my stand-up debut on, on national TV. Who is this kid? I'm the worst sweater you ever want to see. There was always all these uh, deals brewing. You're the hot guy. Somebody wants to do holding deals with you and all of this stuff. Um, I was written into, I was written, written into um, Murphy Brown. Disney had a deal for me. And Eddie Murphy had a deal for a pilot where I played his little brother in Coming to America, right? I picked that. It bombed. It was, uh, the writer was like from different strokes or something. You know, I never knew that that could make a difference in the show, but it can. That's over. And I'm saying I'm going back to the clubs because I'm not going through this anymore, right? And I'm, I'm in the main room, kind of, the main room at the comedy store yeah. is where the big acts play. Right. Mitzi let me kill the belly room. She let me kill the OR. She the belly room was the smaller room. It holds about 80 people. The original room, where it's called the OR, is the room that as you walk in the main entrance. It's a very dark room and holds about 150, maybe 200 people. In Vietnam, they call them grunts. And the main room holds 400 people. Right. And you'd see Roseanne Barr, Seinfeld, Ben Stiller, Adam Sandler, Jim Carrey. And Louis Anderson used to close all the shows after Jim Carrey. Kill. Uh, Sam Kinison was, you know. So I'm on the fringe of becoming this young, really young, really young, hot comedian. But the main room is still the thing, you know. And I, I, I left the whole TV development world. You know, and went back to the clubs. So I get a call from the comedy store. He goes, Mitzi says that you got the main room. 
you don't know what that means, bro. You got the main room. Friday and Saturday night. And you are with Richard Pryor and Eddie Murphy. Either you go on after Eddie and before Richard, or you go on before Richard and after Eddie for four shows. <laughs> and we were like, holy smokes. I was ready to go home. I was, I was catching three, three buses a day working at Sally's Deli, you know? So this is it because in the main room when Eddie's there and Finest Henderson's there who's an incredible talent or Charlie Fleischer's there there's some brilliant comics Charlie Fleischer's the voice of Roger Rabbit and a very talented comedian one of the most extreme unique and Finest Henderson was the first great looking great looking guy that did songs but he was funny too and all the chicks show up that night so the main room is hot you know, so she put me on the hottest Friday night show, and I didn't blink an eye. I didn't blink an eye from 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 going to the Laugh Factory, from going to the Ice House, from trying to get in the belly room, from trying to do gigs. I did a gig on a on a diving board in an empty pool in the hood with one of those school stereo systems. You know, where the speakers are attached, and didn't even get paid. So you know, this main room's a big deal. I do that show that night and I'm at my peak. It's like I prepared for this the whole time. So we're in the back, me and Sinclair. You know, in the back, there's the big room with the piano. And then there's the little hovels where the lesser comics kind of hang out. Yes, there's these little dressing room cubicles. And then there's the main dressing room with this piano coffee table where comics used to do uh, coke off of it. Yeah, chicks, you know, the door's closed. You're not allowed back there. Unbelievable women going back there. So we're standing in this little hovel, you know, after killing two days at the comedy show. I have to stand up to show you this because this is just how it looked. So we're sitting in the hovel trying to figure out what's next. Is Mitzi, you know, that was really cool. What are we going to do next, you know? And Richard comes from the room back here. Richard Pryor. Yeah, and I don't see him. So we're standing in the hovel and he walks. And he goes, you's a funny motherfucker. <laughs> and he walked back into the room. <laughs> and me and Sinclair were like, yes. Oh, my God. I met Richard. This I called my mom. She was like, I told you you shouldn't leave. I told you you should stay. I told you you should stay. And um, from that point on was when, pretty, when stuff pretty much started happening. Because I, came, I became so hot in that room that it didn't matter if the studios were coming for me or anything. It just seems like things were going my way. Now, Keenan approached me from A Living Color, and by now, you know, him and Robert Townsend are becoming movie stars on another level because there hasn't been any black... You think about black comedies now, you go, okay. You know, the best you can do for black comedies was back the films that we know was um, Mother Jugs and Speed you know (laughs) (laughs) you know what I mean or or, or, or across 110th Street but the famous story with Robert Townsend he used all of his credit Credit cards cards. to make Hollywood Shuffle right and his uh, one sheet and Spike Lee's one sheet for She's Gotta Have It were the only one sheets that I saw ever with young black people on it so they started that whole movement 
uh, Hollywood Shuffle came out, which was huge for us, you know. And I had met Keenan at the I'm Gonna Get You Sucker premiere, which blew us away because you were never seeing anything like this. So Keenan comes to me for a living call. You know, there's a show coming up. Da, 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 da. Now you gotta understand, I'm back in stand up. When you say you're back at stand up, if you're, when you're good, this is subjective. When you're good, you wanna stay where you're best. It's a little bit awkward stepping out and people are going, ah, I might put you in the movie or we might do this or we might do that or whatever. Because of that rise, Mitzi took me, Chris Rock, Pauly Shore, Tamayo Otsuki. Famous Japanese comedian. Tamayo Otsuki. Headlined um, Angel Salazar. Took Mamie Ali and put us in Vegas at her Vegas club and in La Jolla. And she called us the new faces of comedy. So we had kind of a platform, you know? So when Keenan came along and was going, I got a show for you, I'm going like, I don't think so. You know, I'm good. The power of no. The power of no, my dumbass. So Michael Gruber, who was my agent. Michael Gruber was one of the only agents at that time and in history who would represent tremendous stand-up comedians who became actors, but he also represented huge movie stars like George Clooney as well. Built George Clooney from a, a sitcom bit actor that was getting old into a huge star, took Queen Latifah, made her a television star, made her a movie star, took Martin, took Martin, made him a TV star and a movie star, took Ice Cube, made him, he just understood, you know what I mean? I didn't like him because he was doing all that for them and not me, but he tells me something. He goes, look, you can pass if you want to pass, okay? Everybody's being asked to do this show. All your contemporaries, Jim Carrey, everybody who's funny. Go audition, and if you get it, you get it. If you don't, you don't. You don't want to leave it on the table. You're talented. If you don't get it, you can live with that, right? One of my philosophies always is just to go in and give everything you have. And when you get the gig, then you can pass if you want to pass. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay. You know, this is at the countless auditions that didn't work out. You know, it's a hurting thing. I was up for a different world, which is the biggest thing you can have on NBC. Carsey Warner, Bill Cosby was down to the last guy, didn't get it. So I'm like, I'm done with this. So I go in to Tamara Rawit, who is the producer, and Keenan Ivory Wayans, and I sit down on the couch, and I had never done improv. I go in to the audition, and I'm not really familiar with sketch, but sketch is in me. Like, I don't have the, the skill, but I got the natural stuff for it. So I go into the office and sit down on the couch. They're sitting there facing me, and they go, okay, now you're a, now you're a, a Puerto Rican cab driver, and somebody set the seat on fire in the back seat huh you know now a, a fat lady's in the elevator with you and she just farted you know they set me up all these things and I was kind of like not really knowing what I was doing you know so I left there going I don't got this damn thing how am I gonna do this damn thing but there's a stand-up audition at the Laugh Factory I can do this I go down there, there's 30 comedians, and everybody who you know was there. 
I showed up and read the names and I was last. And that's last with Martin. Name them. Name all the black comics you know now. So, you know, comedy is a technique. Comedy is a, it's a skill and you, you, you assess the situation and determine what it is you need to do to be successful in that situation. The way I was going to be successful in that situation was to not watch anybody because people can be, um, I'll put this mildly, absorbent of your material. So you may see your show, all you've been doing for the last couple, you'll see remnants of it. So don't watch. So I went outside on um, Sunset Boulevard right there around the corner and me and my coach, it was, it was like Ollie and that guy, you know, let's go, Jim. Angelo Dundee. Yes. I, I walked and paced back and forth on that um, corner until they called my name. How many people were left in the crowd? It was packed because it was sexy. It was the In Living Color audition, just like their dance. Uh, Keenan is a genius in creating energy and buzzes around his projects, okay? Everybody's there. It was fair. Everybody did three minutes, you know? Some went over. You know how that goes. So, I go on last. I've always been really creative. Now, someone ran outside and said, you know, God bless him. You know, Ricky Harris just did this that you do, that that you do, that that you do, and that that you do. And there were pretty good bits that I do, you know. And so I said, okay, you know, let me just, you know, take a couple of deep breaths do what I do best and see what happens because of watching Charlie Fleischer okay and watching Carlin you know watching the guys that can kind of make things happen John Campanera you know there's another one um, Jackson Perdue watching Jim Carrey you know watching them on their feet another one was Steve Odekirk Watching him, watching Roseanne go from the hip, go from the hip. Once she got rolling, you can hang it up. She can go from the hip. Or Ronaldo Ray, or any of these guys that were really Paul Mooney. Paul Mooney used to write for Richard Pryor. Watching these guys on any given, Dom Herrera. Watching them, all the years that I was going down the comedy store, you know, I started working on that muscle that muscle to, 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 to spin gold out of straw. And I just went up there with an open mind and said, you know what's going on in this world. You know what's happening. Try to see if you can come up with something that's going to be now that you can do. So I got up there, Barry, and I did my stuff, my killers. I could do Spanish, you know, I do singers, this, that, and the other thing. But RoboCop was out at the time. And Mike Tyson was really huge with Robin Givens at the time. So my last bit, Barry, was Robin Givens as RoboCop (laughs) against Mike Tyson. And I can't tell you how the bit went, but I got a standing ovation. And Keenan came to me 
that night and said, you got the show. I didn't even know what the show was. We waited six months after we did the pilot. It's supposed to show you what we get in this town. In the pilot, I had very small parts, okay, in the filming of the damn thing. And then I had a, did a really big Sammy number, a Sammy Davis Jr. number, which would have put me as, as one of the key guys, but they pulled it because Sammy was sick. I did Sammy as Mandela, big Broadway thing with Sammy as Mandela, man. It was it was brilliant in total Sammy, you know. And he's it's a, you know, Sammy is Sammy's on Broadway. Sammy as Mandela, you know. Whether I'm white, whether I'm wrong, no cat's gonna stop this ebony star from singing my song. <laughs> I gotta be free. Or 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 um Mr. Steve Biko, Mr. Steve Biko, march, you know. Um um uh who can take apartheid, turn it inside out, show these Africanas what this freedom gig's about. The Mandy Man can, <laughs> the Mandy Man can, but they threw me in the can and threw the key away. Sammy's brilliant, all this stuff. It didn't make it to the pilot. So during the shooting of the pilot, we shoot, uh, we shoot sketches in front of live audiences and none of mine were there. So Keenan goes, why don't you warm up the audience, you know? I warmed up for everything in the world to make a living. $30 a gig, $25 to, to warm up, you know, the price is right, you know? And that night, while I'm doing it, I cut my my shin on a light, so my, 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 my shin is bleeding. I'm not feeling like I'm on this show. You know, like what the hell happened? I wait. All of us wait for six months to even get the show picked up. You know, Barry Dillard got smart because Keenan leaked the tape to other networks when they said no. And then they, him and Lucy Salhini looked like geniuses. And the star was born. I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK. It's centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. Go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary, and everybody who does go and get a copy of this special, I'm going to choose one person randomly, and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, I will Skype them in and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to ikilljfk.com, pick up this documentary. I guarantee you it will blow you away. Six degrees of separation. I just want you to tell me the first thing that comes to mind when I mention these names, speed round. <laughs> Michael Jackson. A miracle. Jamie Foxx. One hell of a talent. Kenny G. Hardest worker I ever seen with my own two eyes. 
Halle Berry. Something like a phenomenon. Tupac Shakur. Genius before his time. Jennifer Lopez. Has created herself through her hard work. Eddie Murphy. The second best. Jim Carrey. The natural. Spike Lee. What's his name? From the Lion King? Simba. <laughs> Got along with everybody. Kuma Matata. Come on. Martin Lawrence. Self-made. Barack Obama. An enigma. Chris Rock. Funky Brilliant. Keenan Ivory Wayans. The Professor Xavier of Comedy. <laughs> Minus the wheelchair. Dave Chappelle. Aberration. Tommy Davidson. Sober versus Tommy Davidson. Not sober. Unclear for the unsober. For the sober. I got this from Tom Cruise. Crystal. You remember that line in the movie? I don't remember the line. Yeah, there's a line in the movie when um somebody says it to him in the courtroom and um A few good men. He goes, Are you clear? After he does the whole there are men on these walls. You want us on that wall. You need us on that wall. Are you clear? And Tom went, Crystal. Unclear? Crystal. And I'm glad I have a chance to talk about it. Because I spent years working on recovery and being here like this. There was a connection, and there's a connection with everyone who, you know, develops let's say um, behaviors that are not good for them you trace it back to something that affected them which is the process that I've been taught you know in recovery you go to the core issue you know the core issue <sighs> the reason why I could talk so clearly about what happened to me as a kid is it because it's because it took the recovery process for me to understand my core issue my core issue there's two but they're they're like they're like uh they're like having mike tyson on one side and freaking think of a mean ass white dude Michael Madsen right okay on the other side okay the abandonment was traumatic they had no idea how long I had been in the trash when when they took me to the hospital there was contusions in my skull I had to stay there to get uh, uh, my my body back nutrients you know and and they didn't know how long I was there you know they can get an idea where I was at, at the at the point where my body was and stuff like that. But that was trauma. So PTSD, there's PTSD is a part of that that part. Okay. 
um, nurturing comes from family, you know? So with the trauma, which is the first thing, they're, they're, they're pretty heavy kissing cousins, the two that, that, that if I didn't understand and go through what I went through, I couldn't be here with you. Because when we talked, it was like we were new friends. It was like, you know, we're off, you know, we're like, we're like, we're like two cowboys meeting in the middle of the street, you know, years ago. So, and it enables stuff like that to happen if you can get some understanding. So that was the one. When I said that that split the atom, that was the second one. Because your family is supposed to be, you know, that nurturing, you know. So I experienced trauma twice. I experienced trauma from the original family, and I experienced trauma from society. From society, you know. And with uh, Vietnam vets, that PTSD comes from a situation where they're so far away with something they don't understand that they have a hard time putting back together, you know? So when I found out that I was different than the people that loved me, coupled with the trauma that I went through, which one of my therapists years ago pointed out, which was very, very key in me getting to where I am, said that the trauma that you experience, you, you experienced it before consciousness. So that trauma exists on a whole deeper level. See? The second trauma comes from the way of the world. So if I don't have them both in perspective, every time I see anything racist, it triggers a trauma because I was the kid that was in the middle of everyone. That, that, that safe haven that I had for a family, that nucleus that finally came around, ended up being a painful situation for me as a kid because my mother was it an embarrassment to me? I don't know that. All the black kids didn't think that I was really black because I had a white mom. And all the white kids definitely didn't think that I was as good as them because I was black. You know? So that's an, that was an ongoing core issue for me. But the, the good that came out of it is my comedy because little did I know I'm a crossover act by uh, natural circumstances I'm neither urban neither white neither impressionist neither uh, storyteller I'm neither I'm neither of those things I'm none of those things I became the comic, the, the, I became the exact comic that grew out of who I am. The exact comic that grew out of who I am. And, and coming from a technical standpoint when it comes to comedy and audiences and stuff like that, the good thing was I played white audiences 
half white audiences, Hispanic audiences, all black audiences, musical audiences. I'm able to take everybody. I'm one of the few comics that can take a little bit from East Indians, a little bit from Spanish people, a little bit from gay people, a little bit from older white women, from younger white women, from brothers in the hood or edu educated brothers, Jews. I can be 100% funny without being offensive, but still being raw. I'm no Sinbad or I'm no Eddie Murphy. I'm no Chris Rock or Richard Pryor. But I encompass a little bit of everybody. So what I would never think that what happened to me with that was a good thing. Never thought that. You know? But Mitzi told me two things that were important in my career. And her voice makes you want to kick her out a window. She said, Tommy... You know, when, when, when I finally became the new comic, at, uh, the, the new uh, Faces of Comedy, and we'd hang out in La Jolla, and my kids were toddlers, and we'd have dinner with her. And she said, I got to tell you something, Tommy. I know that you weren't liking me for the longest time, and you couldn't get in the, the main room for a long time, but it's one of the things that I've learned is that I, I always make the best weight. I always make the best weight. And then when I went through what I went through, you know, years ago, I won't say too long ago, long enough for me to remember and long enough for me not to fucking forget. When I came back, you know, to rebuild from what I went through on my downward spiral, uh, Polly called me and said, my mom wants to talk to you, you know? And I run down to the office, up in the office upstairs with Tommy and all the guys. You know, you love it up there. And she gets me in the office and she goes, uh, I saw you in the club. You're kicking ass again after everything that happened, you know? But I just want to tell you, you know, and I, I didn't have anything to do with this one. I'm really glad it happened to you early. You didn't have to go through some of what the other guys went through. It happened early, early in what I think is early in your career. How are your proudest moment in show business? My proudest moment in this business was when I realized that I'm Barbara Davidson's youngest son. Tommy and when I realized that everything came into balance because you know this can be confusing am I an actor am I am I the top top actor at box office am I gonna be a Grammy dude you know you see people doing it Jamie's doing Grammys and this that and the other thing you know Tom Cruise got a business with his manager unbelievable Joel Silver I, 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 I name old names because I'm old you know there's all this stuff going Jim's got his stuff I'm seeing Ben Stiller you know and all this stuff is going on all of the stuff we can't control you know when your comet comes you ride the damn thing you know 
And I think my greatest accomplishment in this business was the day I realized that I'm just Tommy, Barbara Davidson's youngest son, you know? And it took me a minute to get to that because when she passed away, when she passed away, I realized that I'm her greatest accomplishment. She did it on purpose. When she pulled me out of that pile, I remember her telling me that she took me home to the hotel where her and her husband were staying. And she was always bringing animals home, you know, hurt horses and stuff when she was growing up. And he said, no way. There's no way. Don't even think about it, you know? And I, and I, I honestly believe that she said, I'm going to help this black man go out into the world and give a higher understanding to color and show the world that it actually unequivocally, specifically, and undeniably love is in the center of every single color there is and she set me on that path but the biggest lesson she taught me that makes this true is me and my sister my sister looks like Cindy Brady when we were late to school in high school what they do is you get detention right so sometimes we missed a bus we had to take another bus but we were late so we'd have to go to the you know the office that you guys are in trouble. So they'd send my sister to class and they send me to this the other guy, the, the, the guy that issued detention. And my mother caught wind of this. And my mother called the school and said, what the hell's going on? She said, I want a meeting with the school. And she came down to the school and had a meeting with the principal and all you know, and she said, I don't understand this system that you guys have of detention. I think they should get detention if they're late. You know, these two boneheads are always late. I try to get them to act right, but they won't, you know, but I don't understand why you're sending his sister to her class and you're sending him to detention. And they were like, oh, we didn't know that that was his sister. And we didn't know that. And you didn't, you know, we didn't know that Mrs. Davidson. And that was, and she said, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. I wanted to tell you that to let you know that the only difference between this brother and sister is, 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 is one of them is white and one of them is black. And the black one goes to detention and the white one goes to class. You know, and they said, we'll make sure that doesn't happen again. We'll do, you know, we'll, we'll really, you know, pull that together for you, or this, that, and the other thing. And she was like, okay. And she took me home, out of school for the day. She said, I want you to come home with me. And I was like, oh, man, you know, because she stayed on my case. And she said, I want to tell you something. She said, as messed up as that is, that your sister gets to go to class. She told me this and it pissed me off and I understand it for years because I took it kind of personal. She said, the, your sister gets to go to class because your sister's white. You can't be late because you're black. You have to develop some kind of strategy to never be late. 
and never give a person a reason to punish you for that. You can't be late, but your sister can, and I want you to accept that. I can't change the school system, but I can try to help change you. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. It's happening currently. Biggest disappointment was, you know, once I went through what I went through and started building back my career, that's going to be hard anyway, you know, that's going to be hard. But I think the single most difficult thing is, is that I have a hard time having the people that can, that can, having the people that can, that have the green light capacity to actually put you into projects that are really, really good, just simply not do it. Just simply not do it. But what it's done for me is it made me pretty much like everybody else, you know? It made me like everybody else, you know? We're not waiting around for, it taught me. Because I, when I came in here, I was a golden child. You saw me, I shot like a comet. You know, I didn't really have to work that hard because I was such a natural. Then I had such good people around me. And now it's time to build that character. So what happened for me is there's a new consciousness. And that new consciousness is, you know what? I do the best I can every day. I know that not only am I a great talent, but I'm a really good person. And I got both of those on a daily basis. And as long as I accept what comes along, things get better. What advice do you have for the young person who is in this entertainment business, who has started with so much adversity wherever they are in the world, mm -hmm. to fight through everything you fought through personally, professionally, a comedian, any kind of artist, especially those out there who have dalliances with alcohol, with mm -hmm. substance abuse, and how they can fight through and take their career to the next level like you have? I think pretty much we're all lucky because we, if we don't have immediate family, we do have either friends and even strangers that care about us, care about what we want to do, care. And if you tell them, they start to, to take on your stuff. They start to admire you for what you want to do. I think that if you find a way, <laughs> So only listen to them. If you find a way to really open your mind and only listen to them, I think that'll be the first key. Because usually what they have to say is better for you than what you think. There's all these, um, you know, sayings, you know, never take no for an answer. And, you know, you pull yourself up by the brute strap and you do that stuff. Da, 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 da. You can even do that sometime and it's not happening. But the people that are around you that care about what you're doing, they're 98.7% of the time are going to tell you what's good for you. And what's good for you personally and internally will always move you in the direction of what you want. 
Tommy Davidson, you are the man. This has been an incredible interview. Thank you so much for coming. I hope you enjoyed yourself. I did. Thank you so much. And man, hello again. Hello again. Certainly not for the last time. Okay, as promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary, and you can get it at the website ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week, and one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. All right, landing on Daniel Hustwit from Studio City, California. Congratulations, Daniel. You are a winner. Also, I figure I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. Okay. We're landing on Harry Chronic Jr. <laughs> Fantastic. I love it. Five-star review on June 9th, 2015, titled Undeniable. The review reads, Love this powerful podcast. Thank you so much, Harry Chronic Jr. Congratulations. You <laughs> are a winner. Special thanks to our new sponsor, AquaTrue, the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. Check it out. Go to industrystandardwater.com. Takes you directly to their website. Type in the code 100. Save yourself $100. I have one of these. It's amazing. Start turning your tap water into the best tasting water. Industrystandardwater.com. And as always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. <laughs> you get all the money, drive that fancy car. All the people love you, because you're going far. Life is for the dreamer. They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.